Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 129. Just along for the ride. Today is going to be kind of a grab bag episode. It's still on the first few years of the Great Depression, but we're checking back in on the no man's land of Europe, by which I mean those nations wedged between Germany and Italy on one side and the Soviet Union on the other. The Depression was no less devastating to the smaller states of Central Europe than it was to the big players surrounding them. And because of their scantier resources, their options on how to address the crisis were limited, and many sought out benefactors among the larger states, which gradually drew them into their conflicts. The scale of the crisis also undermined the prevailing status quo of each nation, allowing for a rise in the fascist element in them. While the fascists and proto-fascists of Central Europe would not achieve the kind of power in their home countries matching that of their counterparts in Italy and Germany, their presence and growing influence would become additional conduits of foreign interference. The first of the nations in the region I wanted to touch on is Yugoslavia, an obsession of the Italians during the 20s and early 30s. Last week, I touched on the support coming from Italy for the various opposition groups that pitted themselves against the national government which, by the start of 1929, had undergone a change in leadership. Alexander, king of Yugoslavia, had thrown up his hands in despair of liberal politics. He saw the mission of politicians as being to unify his kingdom and overcome the ethnic and religious tensions that threatened to tear it all apart. Remember that Yugoslavia was a South Slav nation divided by ethnic identity, religion, and even historical connections. He dissolved Parliament and assumed power himself, establishing a type of absolutism that had not been seen in the region for some time. Political parties were outlawed, and their prominent members either put under surveillance or were imprisoned. Despite the suspension of democracy, the politicians largely stood by, each believing the king would be forcing through reforms that they approved of and simply hadn't had the political support to enact themselves. And the first year proved to be a success for Alexander and his personally appointed ministers. Redundant ministries were merged, the bureaucracy became more responsive, the half-dozen separate law codes in play across the nation were merged into one, and accepting the communists, political prisoners were granted amnesty. Even the Croatians were grateful that the constitution they so despised was done away with. Although they quickly changed their tune after October 3, 1929, when Alexander dissolved the existing patchwork of administrative subunits and reorganized Yugoslavia into nine provinces. The trick with this measure was that he didn't go by historical boundaries when making the new units, resulting in groupings that contained a mishmash of nationalities. Which was the entire idea, to be fair. They were all Yugoslavians now, and it would be immaterial to how they were grouped. The people didn't agree, but weren't in a spot to actually do anything. And very quickly, there were going to be bigger problems. And by that, I of course mean the Depression. It reached Yugoslavia in 1930 and initially manifested itself as a financial crisis among the small to middle-sized banks. The tightening of liquidity caused the construction sector to follow the financial one into the crisis, and then industry too went into a spiral as foreign and domestic buyers vanished. But the industrial sector was also the most poorly developed part of Yugoslavia's economy, so the damage was a bit milder there by virtue of there not being many significant firms to go bust. It was in agriculture, though, that the desperate times manifested themselves. Despite being predominantly an agricultural economy, Yugoslavia had managed to endure the global trend of low prices for grain through the 20s and all the way up to 1932. 
The reason for that is because Yugoslavian farms focused on products other than grain, something their neighbors had mostly failed to diversify from. Products like dairy, eggs, and meat commanded far stabler prices than the overproduced grains. But as the Depression entered its third year, even these products saw price declines. The reason was understandable. In a global crisis, nobody had any money with which to actually buy food, especially the more expensive offerings. A bad harvest for animal fodder after the winter of 1932 also meant that there were less animals around to be able to sell at market. Then there was the issue of excess labor from the towns, which, to address unemployment, the state directed agriculture to demechanize, to stop using so many mechanical tools. Uh, from the modern day, this seems like an extraordinary move, but it made a degree of sense at the time. Yugoslavia had to import threshing machines and tractors as its own industries were insufficient to produce such items, and there was no longer sufficient money with which to import them. This had a very real effect on agriculture. Threshing machine imports dropped 2% of their pre-depression numbers, and mechanical harvesters fell to 8%. Fertilizer use was halved. Where farms could not maintain their equipment any further, they had to resort once again to human labor. This trend encouraged the growth of crops that commanded above-average prices and would require larger amounts of labor. This led to significantly more vegetables being grown, and the amount of land given over to corn was almost equal to that of grain. The other success story in the economy during those times was the mining sector. The amount of mined copper and bauxite, which is a rock that contains aluminum, tripled and Yugoslavia became a major exporter of both in the region. While that certainly brought jobs and commerce, it did also confirm Yugoslavia as a resource exporter and dependent on imports for manufactured goods. This would have long-term ramifications as Germany became its biggest customer by the mid-30s and therefore drew the interest of the Nazis in its direction. The handful of silver linings also did not reverse the overall trend of economic decline. Not everyone could be sent to a farm or a mine, and the modest financial and industrial sectors were concentrated in the Northwest, in Slovenia and Croatia. Not spread evenly across the nation, which added yet another wrinkle to the crisis, as those who lost the most were oftentimes in regions already chafing under the government's rule. And despite the early political successes, Alexander didn't really have a good plan on how to actually unite the nation under his leadership. He wanted his subjects to act as one, but lacked the personal charisma to inspire them. And the fact he stacked his government early on with his fellow Serbians was taken as a bad sign. There were protests across the country after he disbanded regional laws establishing distinct rights of the various minorities, as well as after the suppression of social clubs that could be construed of as political. He attempted to curry favor with the Croatians by appointing four to his cabinet, but they were already alienated and the gesture was too little too late. By the end of 1930, the king was starting to lose confidence in his own dictatorship and it showed in his reforms. In the first year, he had implemented 163 new laws. In his second year, he merely enhanced the powers of his security apparatus. He simply didn't quite know what to do with the powers at his disposal. The plan had been to centralize the nation through the bureaucracy and security forces. But the Depression had wrecked the nation's finances and left him fighting to hold things together as they were, you know, much less bind the country closer to him. His ally, France, might have recognized that his regime couldn't go on forever under his royal dictatorship. 
and in early 1931 made a state loan contingent on him creating a new constitution. Hard up for money due to the declining economy, Alexander agreed to step back somewhat. In September 1931, he instituted a new constitution, allowing for a parliament, but also implemented fierce requirements to actually be able to stand for election. Candidates would need to get 60 signatures across 300 districts in order to run. And yes, without going into the bewildering patchwork of districts across the country, that is a crazy requirement and pretty much locked out many candidates and favored the larger community of Serbs and their representatives. The makeup of Parliament also lent itself to the king's control. It was divided into two chambers, the Senate and the Chamber of Deputies. The Senate was half directly appointed by Alexander and half elected. The deputies were at least all elected, but if one chamber passed a piece of legislation, then Alexander could approve it without the other's consent. Meanwhile, if both houses approved something, he could still veto their decision. It wasn't very democratic and only served to enrage the non-Serbs of the country, something that was reflected in the first election results in November. Serbian politicians won 219 of the 306 available seats in the Chamber of Deputies and represented a far larger concentration of power than they had enjoyed during even the 20s. Pretty much every other ethnic group other than the Serbians were infuriated and having been effectively locked out of the new political process, began turning to more radical means of advancing their interests. Alexander's efforts at empowering state surveillance had paid some dividends, though, and was ready to meet the new round of dissent. The VMRO, a Bulgarian separatist-slash-terrorist group operating in Macedonia since well before World War I, was virtually eliminated during these years. I covered them back in episode 42, but just to refresh, they were a Bulgarian nationalist group dead set on delivering Macedonia to Bulgarian control. The group was split into foreign and domestic branches, the foreign one operating in Macedonia, the domestic one operating in Bulgaria proper. And they were a violent lot, having long experience with armed uprisings, as well as targeted killings and terror campaigns against communities that didn't support their efforts. Its parent organization back in Bulgaria was itself being dismantled, depriving the Macedonian branch of vital support as the Yugoslav government cracked down on them. The Communist Party of Yugoslavia, the KPJ, was already living an underground existence and was stuck in the doldrums of bickering with the Social Democrats. Their operations would be insignificant until the, the war years, when they did become very, very important. The big source of resistance to Alexander and the idea of Yugoslavia was the Ustashe. It was founded on January 7, 1929, the day after Alexander announced his dictatorship. Under the leadership of its founder, Ante Pavlic, the group called for the secession of Croatia, along with its territorial claims elsewhere, primarily in Bosnia. The organization was almost immediately targeted by the authorities, and its members largely operated abroad, mostly in Italy and Hungary. In both those countries, training camps were established to train partisans and terrorists to take the fight to the government they so despised. An early foray into northwestern Croatia in November 1932, though, didn't pan out as local peasants were uninterested in the uprising and the Astache fighters were chased back to northern Italy. The group decided that terrorism would be the way to go and additionally made an alliance with the VMRO's remnants, who already knew a thing or two about terrorism. Alexander, meanwhile, had been busy on the diplomatic front after shuffling his domestic government. 
By 1933, the French and Italians were coming together diplomatically, partially due to their traditional Mediterranean rivalry not being a high priority when both were mired in the Depression, and definitely because both were fearful of the intentions of Germany's new leader, Adolf Hitler. This realignment was important for Yugoslavia because France was its chief ally against Italy, and if the French were butting up with Mussolini, well, they would as well. While it had not been publicly announced, Mussolini's ambitions were focusing in on Ethiopia, and plans of a future war with Yugoslavia were delayed indefinitely, so the Italians were open to overtures of friendship. Alexander took a step further to neutralize foreign threats by approaching his opposite number in Bulgaria, Tsar Boris III. Bulgaria at the time was terribly isolated because in February 1934, the Balkan Pact between Yugoslavia, Romania, Greece, and Turkey was signed guaranteeing each other's frontiers. Given the configuration, it was designed to contain Bulgaria specifically. Neither Boris nor his government was happy about that, but the reality was they were in a weak position and needed normalized relations with its neighbors. Encouraged by the new Nazi regime, which saw them both as useful economic satellites, the two countries began talking. They weren't friends by any means, but the threat of either actively working against the other was reduced, and both by that time had the common goal of cracking down on the VMRO. All this act of diplomacy took Alexander out of the country, and it was fatefully in October 1934 that he journeyed to Marseille on a state visit to discuss the anti-German coalition the French were putting together. In a classic assassination scenario, Alexander was traveling in an open car, very slowly, down the street. A Bulgarian gunman with the VMRO stepped out and shot the king dead on October 9th. The assassin was run through with a sword by a mounted French cop, and the crowd finished him off. While he was with the VMRO, it later turned out that he had spent time at a Nustashi training camp in Hungary, and the Croatian group were the ones who that got him into France. The event backfired terribly on Nustashi and the VMRO. Instead of provoking an ethnic uprising after the death of the king, the nation was united in public mourning. The international outcry was such that the training camps outside Yugoslavia were closed. Bavlich and his followers in Italy were interned by the fascist government. Which is important because while they were put on ice, they weren't gone. As for the royal dictatorship, it didn't last beyond Alexander. His son, Prince Peter, was a child and un unable to take the throne. It was left to the king's cousin, Prince Paul, to become regent. He opted to rule through civilian means to try and shore up the state's legitimacy, inaugurating a more open political scene than Alexander had allowed the past five years. And while the worst of the crisis years had been endured, challenges remained. The nation at the start of 1935 was far more united than it had been, and groups challenging its existence had been largely chased off. But the economy was still in a shambles, and the loyalty of the Croatians was always bound to wither away over time. When I pick up with Yugoslavia again later in the season, we'll be examining the attempts to cobble together a national settlement without resorting to Alexander's absolutism. And to move on from Yugoslavia, I mentioned Bulgaria already, so I might as well check in on them and their depression years. I left the Bulgarians last season still grappling with the VMRO, operating as an independent group within their borders, and internal institutions being badly mangled by coups and purges. Tsar Boris played the diplomat abroad, but at home held much less power. And its citizenry was in a bad way even before the Depression, on account of the global decline of grain prices. Which was three-quarters of Bulgaria's agricultural output, so yeah, when those prices only went down further thanks to demand slackening after 1929, 
it became a real problem. Thing was, though, that Bulgaria was terribly impoverished before the crisis, so there really wasn't anything to be done once the depression got underway. Attempts were made, like in Yugoslavia, to diversify crops, because the nation really, really couldn't move away from agriculture, but changes represented a fraction of total output, which was still overwhelmingly based on grain. The sole success story of Bulgaria's economy after 1929 was its expanding tobacco industry, which, yeah, was not exactly the most dynamic new economic trend. The collapse of the nation's standard of living after 1929 also signaled the swan song of the VMRO. Keep in mind, the organization, while nationalist in character, was never truly loyal to the Bulgarian state and would, at the drop of a hat, work to destabilize it in order to push its leaders to more actively work towards seizing Macedonia. How the heck Bulgaria's leadership were supposed to do that in the midst of an economic calamity and while ringed by enemies, I have no idea, but the VMRO didn't care about excuses. They launched terror attacks on Bulgarian villages, targeting officials who failed to show proper support to the cause of Greater Bulgaria. At the same time, Bulgaria's domestic politics reached rock bottom in the early 30s. The parliament was paralyzed by conflicts between liberals and populists, and many elites concluded that democracy in the country had failed once again. While the clique of military leaders interfering in the nation's politics had been disbanded in the mid-20s after a round of reactionary terror, it started to recoalesce after 1929. By 1930, a new clique of anti-democratic military officers had joined with disaffected politicians and public notables to form a political circle called Zaveno, meaning link. I say political circle and not party because they were naturally not a democratic bunch and uninterested in elections. With the backing of the military, Colonel Damian Veltchev launched a coup on May 19, 1934 and overthrew parliament. Kaiman Georgiev, the leader of Zveno, established himself as prime minister with the assent of Tsar Boris, who saw an opportunity to break down the downward spiral the nation was in. Political parties and organizations were disbanded, and the constitution was suspended. The Zveno government could be described as proto-fascist, but they were too apolitical to meet the requirements of being a genuinely fascist organization. Their focus was primarily on ruling by decree and forcing through reforms parliament was incapable of doing. Very quickly, power was centralized in the capital, Sofia, and the state took control of the grain trade, subsidizing farmers with vastly inflated prices over what they had been getting previously. A corporatist structure similar to Italy's was implemented in the nation's modest industries, which all effectively gave the state control of the economy. The big move made by the new government, though, was immediately engaging the VMRO in a showdown. The military men backing Zaveno were at their wit's end with the group and its destabilizing tendencies, and resolved to shut it down once and for all. The VMRO leaders were unprepared to meet the full strength of the military, and maybe a little surprisingly stood the whole group down. I say surprisingly because the VMRO had been an active force in Bulgarian life for the past 40 years, and the organization had a lot of blood on its collective hands, so its members just agreeing to disarm and disperse immediately must have been a welcome relief to a populace that had been terrorized by them for decades. The group's leadership decided that they didn't want to start a civil war, which, hey, fair, that's a, that's a good thing, but they hadn't been shy about doing that in the past. But in any event, the state power was triumphant in Bulgaria by the end of June 1934. Prime Minister Georgiev, though, wouldn't have long to relish his victory. Tsar Boris might have been all in favor of them finally crushing the VMRO, but he didn't especially like the new government's dependence on the military. 
For generations, the army had itself been a destabilizing force in Bulgarian politics, and with all other threats removed, Boris decided the time was opportune to finish the job. He was helped in this ambition by the fact that the military itself was split between pro- and anti-Zaveno factions, which Colonel Velchev tried to settle, but Boris stepped in before the government could sort itself out. The Tsar went from being a mocked non-entity to the supreme power in the land by dismissing Georgiev and the Zveno government in April 1935, as well as numerous army officers that had supported the movement. Velchev, for his part, fled abroad, although he would later try to sneak back in with the intent of launching another coup in 1936, but he was arrested immediately. Bulgaria thus emerged from the Depression with many of its lingering political questions actually settled. The economy was in state hands, the army had been defanged, the VMRO was eliminated, and its chaotic democracy was dissolved. Boris was, unlikely enough, the royal dictator, and while he would later reinstitute democratic rights, he was very much the ultimate power in the country. Finally, I'll close out today's episode with a little catch-up with the southernmost part of Central Europe, Greece. I left them back in episode 43, once again under the leadership of Prime Minister Eleftherios Venizelos. Greece had gone through a lot in the 20s, what with the failed invasion of Turkey, a bitter struggle between the king and parliament, and later the military and parliament, and integrating millions of Greek refugees that had been expelled from Turkey. And it was those refugees that formed the basis of Venizelos' continued relevancy in Greek politics, as he had been a prominent statesman since the late 1800s. But his policies of detente with Turkey in the late 20s wound up turning away much of that support as the refugees realized he was not going to be winning their homes back. And just as Venizelos had at least stabilized Greek politics, the Depression struck. Which at first was another case where the effects did not seem immediately severe. The problem was that Greece's economy was tightly intertwined with that of the UK, and when the UK hopped off the gold standard in September 1931, the value of the pound declined, leaving the Greek drachma as suddenly too valuable in comparison and devastating what exports they had. The nation's finances collapsed, and the national debt was defaulted upon in April 1932. This was, politically speaking, a bad time for Venizelos, as there was an election in September, and his base of support was rapidly eroding away. His response was to grow ever more partisan, and declared that the old conflict between his liberals and the pro-monarchist faction in politics had to be settled immediately. It didn't have to, he simply wanted to rile up the electorate and convince his supporters to turn out for him. The strategy might not have been good for public discourse, but in the election itself, Venizelos almost managed to survive. His Liberal Party effectively tied with the opposition People's Party that had banded together more or less just to get rid of him. So naturally, they weren't willing to form a coalition with him, and so a new election had to be called in March 1933, which he lost properly. The story wasn't done, though, as the day after the election saw a military coup be launched in Athens to overturn the result and reinstall Venizelos. Remember that the military was divided against itself, so both political factions had support there. The coup attempt failed immediately, and the politicians distanced themselves from the army. The new government under Panagus Zaldaris would itself suffer from constant instability. The parliament was still badly divided, with fistfights becoming a common occurrence. Venizelos would suffer an assassination attempt while being driven through the countryside back to Athens. A car of assailants conducted a high-speed chase, all the while riddling Venizelos's car with bullets. 
Miraculously, he and his wife escaped without injury. It was mightily suspicious, though, when the government stonewalled investigations into the incident, and Venizelos threatened that a civil war was sure to come. That threat was made good upon when sections of the military again attempted a coup on March 1, 1935. This was led by General Nikolaus Plastiris, the same officer who had organized the 1933 coup attempt. This time, though, Venizelos was completely on board with the effort, and the scale of the uprising was much more extensive, with planned mutinies all across the country. The idea was that Athens was too secure, and that the outlying regions, especially in the liberal bastions to the north, had to be seized first. From there, the liberals would establish a counter-government in Salonika, just as they had back in 1916. While the rebels were successful in much of the north and in Crete, Salonika did not fall to its forces. And while the Saldaris government was paralyzed for the first few days, it was able to eventually regroup, and both Plasteris and Venizelos were forced into exile. This would be the end of the elder statesman's political career. But it would not be the end of the troubles facing Saldaris. In order to defeat the coup, he had to rely on monarchist officers and politicians, who now pushed for a referendum on whether to reinstall the king. Remember, George II had been forced to abdicate in the aftermath of the Greco-Turkish War debacle. Saldaris instead announced a general election in June, both to put off a referendum by increasing his own legitimacy, as well as to get the liberals out of parliament. On the latter goal, he succeeded, but the military officers were uninterested in propping up his government now that Venizelos was gone. In their eyes, the democracy was fatally compromised, and the only way to purge the old man's base of support was through authoritarian means. On October 10, 1935, Zaldaris had his car stopped in Athens by a group of generals. They arrested him, announced he had resigned, and took power for themselves. The leader of this clique was General Georgios Kondylis, who, if you have a very good memory, remember from last season, is the guy who had gotten rid of General Pangalos' military dictatorship almost a decade previously. Back then, Kondylis had supported Venizelos, but with the old man gone for good, he switched over to support the monarchy's restoration which occurred on November 3rd after a rigged election delivered King George II, 97% of the electorate being in favor of him coming back home. If Condylas had thought he would be rewarded for his efforts, he was badly mistaken, as George wanted to keep the democracy intact, albeit with him being head of state once again. This was not at all to the liking of the officers, but George quickly removed those opposed to his pro-democratic stance. He dismissed Condylas shortly after returning in late November, and in January ordered a general election free of interference. The result was humdrum except for one little twist. The Liberals and the People's Party split most of the votes and were the biggest parties, but suddenly there was a significant third group that had not previously enjoyed much success. I'm going to wrap up here for Greece and pick up later in the season, but the nation's politics were going to be influenced much more by the appearance of the Communists who enjoyed just enough support that they could make or break a government in early 1936. If that sounds like a recipe for instant right-wing backlash, very good, that's exactly what would happen. But I'm saving that for when I return to the region in the latter half of the 30s, when things really started to break down. Whew, okay, I covered a lot today. Bouncing between three countries isn't something I usually do in one episode. A broad theme to take away from this, though, was just how destabilizing the effects of the Depression were on national politics in Central Europe, and how they resulted in mad scrambles for power, so much so that these nations I've covered today either walked to the edge of civil war or even partially dipped into it. The global crisis left governments weak and prone to upheaval, with 
no solution being found to move forward during the first part of the 30s. This economic and political weakness would mean that the region would become a diplomatic battleground well before World War II even began. And that'll be where I pick up with these nations later on in the season, when Nazi Germany really started gearing up and started to expand its sphere of influence. Next week, I'll be turning my attentions northward to Austria and Hungary. While, and while their stories are similar, there is one element in their cases that I haven't touched on as much in this episode, namely the rise of fascism. The states I covered today had brushes with fascism, they certainly had fascistic elements in play, but at best, uh, they settled into periods of authoritarianism, not true fascism. Uh, their neighbors to the north had far more advanced examples of fascists to deal with, ones that would become allies and playthings of the larger Axis powers. So join me for that next week, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.